Hello, welcome to the last Wednesday of the week, the multi-tool of sports podcast. We bring you the highlights of the week in sport, the highlights ahead, and usually dive into some bigger topics. I'm Dan, I'm joined by Simon and Ben, and on this week's show we get stuck into... Tennis, Olympics, golf, NFL, cricket, boxing, American soccer, European football, the Euros, F1, and the World Endurance Championships. Boys, we've got a lot on. Let's get started. Yes, here we are. Welcome to the last Wednesday of the week. And don't worry, this voice is back. I know you missed me last week, listeners. I was on a hiatus on my yacht with um, some footballer, Ben, you told me to say. Roman Abramovich. Uh, I was with him. Owner. My mate, buddy, Ro. Ro, Ro, buddy Ro, we call him. Buddy, Ro, Ro. Ro, Ro. Anyway, yes, I was on holiday last week and uh, you two gents got stuck into the Euros for a Euro special. So if you haven't checked out that show, look back through the catalogue and do check it out because the Euros, of course, are coming up soon. A lot's happened since that show with respect to the Euros. There's been a couple of friendlies, a lot more talk about the start in 11. Uh, so we're going to get stuck into all that a bit later on as well. But of course, we're going to uh, do our usual. We're going to take a look back over the last week and a bit probably of uh, sport because a lot's been happening and it seems to be all kicking off at the moment, Ben, um, particularly the tennis. Let's talk to us about the tennis. Yeah, I uh, I feel like I'm always talking tennis, but there's always some tennis going on. Uh, it's it's brilliant at the moment. Roland Garros is in full swing in France. Uh, not a huge amount of spectators. France is currently in the throes of a, a third wave. Um, but the tournament and the quality of the tennis has been genuinely incredible. And some huge stories, some upsets, uh, and also some withdrawals. Now, this uh, the first withdrawal, Naomi Saka, she withdrew before our last episode, but because we were doing a special, we kind of missed it. So I just briefly want to say that Naomi Osaka withdrew from the French Open at Roland Garros. Uh, she said that she would not speak to the media prior to the event uh, to protect her mental health. Okay, um, Her statement on Twitter said that she was feeling vulnerable and anxious prior to the tournament. Uh, that she does suffer from social anxiety, which is fairly evident, has been very obvious at times throughout her career because she's had to do press, uh, you know, media after matches and also had to talk to presenters on the pitch after winning slams, you know, really precious situations. So she said to the Roland Garros, um, Board to say, listen, I, I don't want to do media to protect my mental health. I'm not going to speak to any any journalists during this tournament. So in classic tennis fashion, they find her $15,000 and uh, she then withdrew. Now, she didn't withdrew in spite. She just said, listen, I, I'm not in the mental space right now to be able to do the media. And also I'm taking away the focus off the brilliant Roland Garros onto myself. Uh, so she 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 delivered a, a a tweet and it was um eloquent and she got a lot of support i mean huge amount of support around the world uh, rightly so uh mental health does need support regardless if you're a you know a, a cleaner in your local supermarket or the best tennis player in the world it doesn't really matter uh, mental health needs to be discussed she has since as of yesterday pulled out of next week's berlin wta 5000 um that would have been her warm-up tournament for Wimbledon. So I'd be surprised if she makes it to Wimbledon. 
So, I mean, it's fair to say that we absolutely support her message and her reasons for doing what she needed to do ahead of this. Uh, and of course, the message she put out. What are the implications for, for Roland Garros and, and the wider tennis institution that puts so much pressure on uh, these players to perform not only on the pitch, but also in front of the camera and the media? Yeah, I, there's pressure in all professional sport. Like, let's get that straight from the outset. But there's, tennis is a very different thing. It's a one-on-one sport. This is not a, a team of five basketball players with the rest on the bench. This isn't a team of 11 football players. It is one versus one. Huge pressure situations. And the tennis media at times are vile. Yeah, so sorry. Um, I just first of all, I wanted to speak because I have been on the podcast now for over four minutes and haven't said anything. So I'm <laughs> very much looking forward to saying something. Um, I think in sport, I think mental health is still one of the biggest taboo topics that we have. Um, you know, obviously other things like sexuality and stuff like that. You know, obviously there's, a, there's not many openly gay sportsmen and all sorts of things as well, but. I think mental health is one of the ones that we really is quite taboo and it, and it, and it goes to show, um, you know, like you said, it's, it's not just going up and, and playing in a, in a grand slam or something like that, but, you know, having to face the media. And I think that can be daunting for anybody. And these people are almost like put up there, you know, in front of, in front of dozens and dozens of people in press rooms, cameras in their face and stuff, and just asked to perform, you know, almost like seals or something. And it's, I think we have to think more about this and it's actually good that someone's actually stepped up and said this and she's done this for her own well-being rather than necessary I think to make a statement or anything like that but I think a statement has been made with her actions in terms of it's highlighting an issue that we really don't talk about and she's got a lot of support from within the tennis community not so much with tennis journalists who obviously um uh, as Ben's highlighted especially on Twitter ben, by the way Ben is an absolute guru on Twitter at the moment um but yeah I think it goes to show that, you know, we've highlighted a very important issue and I, I can just feel really sorry for her and, and she's obviously struggling and to have some horrible backlash that she got from certain quarters of the tennis press has just been abhorrent, really. Yeah, the, the tennis press are notoriously strong and they also, uh, they get shaded by the, the tennis players and I think that it, it kind of escalates each other, if that makes sense. You know, Murray's been notoriously um cold with the press in in past conferences um there was obviously a lot of support from uh, professional uh, other professional athletes a lot of them saying i know what you're going through which maybe lessens the conversation because naomi osaka struggles with social anxiety clinical social anxiety um and you know a lot of people like the lewis hamiltons of the world clearly don't and shouldn't necessarily know what they're going through but should still be supportive nonetheless less but there was a lot of conversation um obviously twitter was where she gave her kind of statements that's where a lot of it played out there you go and um roland garros uh, am i right have said they're, they're looking forward to working with players going forward yeah nothing will change <laughs> yeah and does it have implications for other tournaments coming out like you said you mentioned berlin but also wimbledon will, will eyes be on wimbledon uh, in that respect yeah. So eyes are on Wimbledon at the moment because of a couple of reasons. They've uh, changed their ticket procedures for this year. And also on the back, lash of, at the back of this, they will, they will be high and mighty. 
they will sit above Roland Garros and say, <clears throat> we did it a bit differently. We've never been like that. This is the way we do it. And they will come up with this all England club mentality saying that they never pushed, never, you know. So I think it's a position Bru- for Wimbledon to under very... the carpet. <laughs> yeah, it's very easy for Wimbledon to go, well, Roland Garros did that. We're the best slam. We yeah. don't do this. But yeah. by the looks of things, Osaka's not going to be there. And that's a big miss. She's number two in the world. She's the best draw in women's tennis up there with Ash Barty. Um, on a quick note there on Wimbledon, this is the first year when they're not doing the public ballot. So 100,000 Wimbledon tickets will go on sale any day in the next week. No one knows when. It's just going to go boom, 9 a.m., Glastonbury. And at, and, and at 8.59, they'll all be sold out. Of course they will, yeah. Ticketmaster, <laughs> 5,000. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for that. And then let's let's talk about Wimbledon a little bit because, of course, it is you know it's a massive event. Not just because we're British, but a lot of the players um, you know look to that as the kind of the jewel in their tennis calendar. And, and one such person is Federer, of course, um, who's been working up to Wimbledon and he he's had a, a, well an incredible role on Garros, but not without a bit of controversy towards the end of his time in it. Ben, yeah, for those. Uh, so this is another withdrawal. Uh, Roger Federer won the first three rounds of Roland Garros and he's withdrawn. He didn't lose any matches. He didn't necessarily get injured either. And his mental space was very strong, uh, but he withdrew. Now, to those outsiders, they might look at that and go, well, you're just handing Berrettini, it was, who was due to play him, just handing him a free buy. Um, You should still play the match until you're actually injured. But those who know tennis and see tennis know that Federer is on a comeback tour. He has um, had two knee surgeries in the last 16 months. He's nearly 40 years old. His best uh, surface is grass. He's only ever won one clay, uh, and that was when uh, Sodling amazingly knocked Nadal out in the semifinal. So he he was never going to win the tournament on clay, but if he'd carried on, there's a very good chance he would have re-injured that knee and wiped him out for Wimbledon. So he's in the position where he's allowed to do that. He's 39, he's the greatest of all time. He can choose to pull out of a tournament, side. The only the only thing, and I, I agree with a lot of what you said, the only thing that kind of strikes me a little bit is would be that um, would you suggest maybe one of the big grand slams is not the kind of place to be doing a, a comeback tour or a warm-up tournament and um, is that not a little disrespectful if, if it had been Wimbledon that the one that he was actually doing as a warm-up um you know before pulling out would we would this have created an outcry on our part I'm just just curious to see yes there are that's as great that he's done this and he's coming back and he's in he's in good form but are we are we not disrespecting one of the biggest tournaments, especially where you said there are other tournaments surrounding these Grand Slams where he could maybe uh, do some more practice matches? Yeah, and that's a fair point. His his third match, the match he won against uh, Dominic Kupfer, actually a really great match. It was close. Kupfer was really aggressive. Um, it was good stuff, but it was played out in front of zero fans in the night games, so the night sessions, started at 9 p.m., uh, France time, 8 p.m. our time, and finished at uh, the local time of nearly one o'clock in the morning. Roger Federer, you know, greatest sportsman arguably in the history, was playing in front of no fans late on. He's earned it. He's earned the ability to go, no, guys, I'm not going to hurt my knee. I just had two surgeries on. I'm nearly 40. I want to play Wimbledon. If this was Wimbledon and he got through to the second week, I think he'd play till he got injured. I really do. And I think we might actually see that in Wimbledon but he is dare I say it he's one of the favorites for Wimbledon which is unbelievable at 40. 
And we're, we're very excited about Wimbledon and something we'll be watching with keen eyes or hawk eyes, should I say. Um, <laughs> so um, in terms of, uh, let's, let's, on the topic of preferred services, Ben, you've got some Olympic news for us. Of course, uh, Mo Farah um, famously uh, moved from the track uh, out onto the road again to try and get back into the marathon and the road running. Didn't quite work out for him as, as perhaps uh, he, he'd hoped. And he's, he was looking to make a comeback to the track, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, Mo Farah, the great 10,000 meter runner, great British runner, Olympic world champion, double Olympic champion in the 10 and 5k. Uh, brilliant. Sir Mo Farah, one of the great English athletes of all time, without doubt. Also a wonderful personality, interesting, dedicated one Mo mile hashtags should never have left the track Dan should never have left the track. He went to go to the marathon. He was not nearly good enough. Yes, the marathon times would blow normal people's brains. I mean, yeah. he's, you know, he's very quick, you know, <laughs> within four minutes of the world record, you know, <laughs> but still never. I mean, finishing outside the top 15 in events. Uh, so it was never, he never looked comfortable in the marathon or the marathon pace. The problem is, I think he'd lost what could have arguably been his, his best four years at 10K. I think he could already carried on. Now he's missed the qualifying time. And they're talking now to see if there's a way that he can get it. So he'll probably go to another event or a personal timed event and they get someone out there. I don't know what hoops they have to jump through to get through to the Olympics. But the good news is we're 44 days away from an Olympics that is going ahead. Yeah, by all accounts, definitely going ahead. Yeah, so uh, one question, Ben. Um, Is this not the perfect example of someone quitting something that they're they're fantastic at to try something else and it just spectacularly backfiring a little bit i mean yeah. it's a sad case of affairs i mean he could have you know dominated this event for as you said you lost out on four years of his of his career effectively uh, is this not a gamble that maybe someone should have talked him out of he was probably at the right age i mean i think he moved to the marathon at 34 he was he was maybe the right age he was following the footsteps of the footsteps of the great kenanisa bekele the ethiopian runner um and my absolute idol hero, uh, Haile Gabri Selassie. They've all kind of moved up into that. But he never looked comfortable at the marathon um, at the professional level. The other issue is he went to the marathon when you've got arguably the best marathon runner of all time dominating proceedings, Elliot Kipchoge. So it, maybe that's unfortunate. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we will, will that We will never know. So we can never go. We can never take those four years back. We'll never know. Yeah, I kind of looking at it. I've had a little read of it the last few days. It's kind of got a bit of Michael Jordan to the uh, minor league baseball kind of feel <laughs> to it a little bit. I, I actually that that popped up on my Instagram yesterday because they were talking about who do you want in a clutch situation out of these um, retirees or something, whatever. And it showed him getting to first base. He was a poor, poor baseball player. <laughs> oh, that documentary is unbelievable. Whatever it was called, what was it called? Uh, the Last Dance. The Last Dance. Wow, mm. if you've not seen that, Netflix, get that watched. Yeah. Uh, but one on the Olympics, a last note. So update, I've said that it's going to go ahead. Uh, John Coates, who's a senior member of the IOC, has said that the 2020 Games can, not will, can go ahead this summer. Obviously, there's widespread opposition in Japan, multiple warnings from health experts, etc. Almost 100% of the athletes who will be fully vaccinated, but 
uh, of Japan's population, how many do you reckon are vaccinated? Here's a quiz for you. Give me, I'll give you, uh, give me a percentage. Sai, okay. Oh, a percentage of Japan's population vaccinated. Thirty percent. Thirty percent down. Ten. Four percent. Which is the wow. lowest rate of any advanced economic country in the world. Isn't that kind of fly almost like flies in face of of what we almost stereotypically think of Japan being this like um, technologically advanced, you know, getting things or you know done very well organized and stuff like that, and to have a situation where only four percent have been done, that's, they, that's crazy. They have a lot of money tied up in Fukushima, but I would say uh, going forward. The reason there has been multiple warnings is because it's not the it's not the athletes they're worried about. It's protecting their own people, and I do understand that. But I'll tell you now: the Olympics is going ahead in forty four days. Sport will forge on. There you go. Well, um, we're going to change change gears a little bit from uh, rapid uh, running around tracks to strolling around greens. You've got a bit of golf news for us, Ben. <laughs> what uh, podcast would it be without some golf news? Dan, have you heard this story of John Rahm? I have not heard the story about John okay, Rahm. Okay, okay. Pull your socks up, Dan, because this is they a doozy. Are up. Uh, you could have had a fantastic COVID segue as well into this story because it is about COVID. <laughs> now, I speak lightly about COVID. John Rahm is very healthy. His family are healthy. Uh, doesn't seem to be any illness, so we can talk about this story quite lighthearted. But John Rahm, uh, world-class professional golfer. As Sai was saying at the top of the show, I think he's top 10 nearly uh, in the world, or top 15 at least. He walked off the 18th green down at Muirfield Village. He got a phone call telling him he tested positive for COVID-19. Okay. Wow. He just finished his third round and was leading the tournament by six shots with one round to go. He was cruising to a check for $1.7 million. Okay. But he wished he'd put his phone on silent. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, there was calls from ex-golfers to say, let him finish the round uh, on his own. So just mm. be- make a bubble around him. And people were like, shut up. Four million people have died of this. He's, he's finished. Nah, he's out yeah. of the tournament. Absolutely right. So John Rahm said, listen, it's, it's, it's really only a small um, problem in the grand scheme of things. It's okay for him to say that because up to date, he's won 26 million on the tour. Mm. <laughs> but the bookies paid out on the John Rahm win. Really? Yes. That's surprising. I think to be honest as well like he's he he was so far ahead. It is a tragic circumstance. You said it was quite funny Ben which I was quite taken aback Listen, by. I think it's funny. The guy the guy was uh, uh, going to walk to 2 million dollars. <laughs> Wait, was I'm he sorry, the favorite but... though? He was dominating the, the so, event. So the odds so they they paid out less by giving him the payout than they would have done no, to who would have come first afterwards. Golf isn't um, one of those. Golf is a very tumultuous <laughs> betting because you don't have those heavy favourites. So it's tumultuous, it, is it? Tumultuous. Is that the right word? <laughs> I don't um, know. It's a big I think it's the right <laughs> word. So basically, in horse racing, you might get a horse that's five to two on. In golf, you know, your favourite could be eight to one, ten to one. You know, like it, I don't know what his odds were. I think he was as short as twelve to one. But there's still a lot to pay out. They would have paid thousands out, but they still wouldn't. Listen, the bookies were not out of pocket, Dan. I'm just saying no, it's I'm not impressive that they pay out, yeah. Wow. Sorry? 
Yeah, all I can do is echo that fair play on them to do that. It's not like bookies still want to give away free money. So, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it would have looked bad if they hadn't because it was almost a certainty that he was going to he was gonna carry on and, and, and finish it. And as I said, he's a fantastic golfer uh, and actually quite gutted for the guy, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely good. But he's he's a really strong head. I think he's got a strong family around him, and um, he's you'll hear the name John Rahm for twenty years. He's a world class world class golfer. First name on the uh, on the Ryder Cup team for Europe, I think, in my opinion. Yes, absolutely will be. Yeah, and the U.S. Open's coming up in two weeks. Funny enough, I won't mention it later. But there you go, more golf. Well, let's move stateside, Ben. You've got some NFL uh, interest for us as well today. Oh, wow. I just put my notes away. Am I still carrying on? You've got uh, Titans Okay, no, I've got Titans. No, this is a question. So, wow, I've got so much on my desk today. Uh, (laughs) Titans have signed. The Tennessee Titans have signed. They're the ones who make Jack Daniels. uh, Have signed (laughs) um, Julio Jones from Simon. (laughs) From me, um, for, uh, no. So they've signed him from the Atlanta Falcons, um, yeah. And I say signed; they've actually traded for him. So uh, the Titans gave up. Um, it was a second and a fourth round pick for Julio Jones, and a fifth round pick or something like, or sixth round pick, I think it was. So um, not what you would assume would be a, a particularly big amount of uh, of draft picks for what is one of the the best wide receivers of this generation. Um, he was coming towards an acrimonious end with uh, with um, with the Falcons, and it, it seemed like a good time to to to, to finish up because they're a team that's kind of going a bit nowhere at the moment. But yeah, he's now with the Titans, and he now will form a devastating two man team with AJ Brown, I believe, uh, and himself uh, with Derek Henry still at running back. So a really really tasty looking offense for the Titans. Unfortunately. Uh, they tend to run the ball a lot, so maybe having a wide receiver is probably <laughs> slightly redundant for them. But yeah, it gives them many options. Yeah, incredible for fantasy players, and we're definitely going to do a fantasy draft special later this summer because uh, AJ Brown, Henry, or Jones will definitely be in there. He's got fifteen million dollars guaranteed, Dan. I believe the uh, quarterback Tannehill's taken a pay cut to to get the move done. The Falcons, they've got Cal Pitts, haven't they? That's about it, and. Um, Oh, and Ridley. That's probably all they've got, really, to be honest at the moment. Okay, big big change at the Falcons. Big, Mm. um, They're the one with the wonderful Mercedes-Benz arena, so I'm sure they'll attract big players in the next couple of years anyway. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ben, for that roundup of the week and a bit just gone. Uh, Si, let's move on to you. And um, there's trouble at the mill, isn't there, in cricket? What's going on? Is that... What is that? A Skippy reference, or is that a, it's a Lassie reference? Isn't it? Is it not? Just, um, just trouble at mill. Trouble at mill. All right. Okay. Well, moving on from that slightly bizarre segue. Um, skippy. How's that a Skippy reference? Um, he's stuck down the well, isn't he? Someone's stuck in the waterhole or something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Stuck in a well, and then um, this is terrible. This is terrible. How old podcasting. do you think I am? Just not answer that question. Um, <laughs> so, Ollie Robinson, um, he's been in the news a lot recently, last few days. Uh, he was called up for his first test um, against New Zealand. Um, that would have been last week now. Um, and played really well, actually. He got seven wickets between the two innings uh, for 101 runs. So, I mean, it was a very weak England side, and he was one of the outstanding lights. Um sadly for a lot of reasons sadly for him obviously but also sadly for cricket and 
you know, to a certain extent, the country as a whole. Um, on his first day, as he was standing there wearing a anti-racism T-shirt, uh, historic tweets from him as an 18-year-old um, were released, uh, showing you know some pretty abhorrent, um, you know, racist racist things um sexist things you know a lot of misogyny as well as as racism um and yeah it's it's a sad state of affairs he had to come out after day one uh, and apologize to um to everybody um and since then since the end of the test because obviously nothing could really happen during the test but as soon as the test ended um which i believe was a draw um, he was um, suspended by the ECB, the England, England, England and Wales Cricket Board, for probably indefinitely, I believe. Which is a very, it's a very subjective thing because indefinitely, effectively, could mean one game, or it could mean that he never plays international cricket ever again. But he's been banned from all forms of international cricket. Uh, for the time being, and we shall see where it goes. Um, he seemed relatively remorseful with his uh, his interviews after after the first day, but I mean, I suppose anyone would in that sort of situation. Um, it's left me kind of. I mean, I'd be interesting to see what both of you feel. It's kind of left me a little bit kind of on the fence in terms of what I think about this. I think what he said. I mean, I've read what he said is disgusting. Um, the only thing I would say is obviously he was an 18-year-old at the time. I'm not excusing that. He's still an adult. Um, he still has the right ability to make these. You know, he was, it wasn't cajoled. He wasn't forced into doing any of this from what I'm aware. Um, so he's 27 now. So this is eight to nine years ago. Um, when, when is enough? Do we do we ban him? I mean, players like Michael Carberry, uh, ex-England opening batsman, was wanting to have him uh, banned forever from all forms of cricket which seems possibly a little extreme to me. We've had uh, the culture secretary um, and an endorsement by Boris Johnson going the other way, seeing that the ECB's decision has been uh, exceedingly harsh. Um, so, yeah, I'm a little bit on the fence about what I think. I think he needs to be punished. An example needs to be made. Um, I think the fact that it was such a long time ago does come a little bit to his defense in terms of, um, you know, everyone makes mistakes. What you are as a, an 18-year-old doesn't mean you are now. I mean, I'd hate to to think about some of the stuff, not in that regard. I'm not saying I said anything particularly racist or sexist, um, but you know, the sort of stuff that we all said back in those days, I'm trying to scramble now. Um, yeah. Don't bring so, us into this. Yeah. What kind yeah. of, what kind of stuff did you say? <laughs> terrible stuff. I, I want to interject yeah. if I can. He was, he was not a child side though. 18. This wasn't a 14, 13 year old who should know better. He was an adult. He could drink, he could drive, he could get married, he could buy a house. But he, he can, can he can smack he can vote he can vote exactly. I, I, I mean, I, I I also did see the tweets and um, like you say, Sai, they there's no ambiguity about them. Um, he even used the hashtag racist in one of them, I think. Mm. Um, yes. So he he was very aware of what he was tweeting. Um, I think punishment is absolutely right. Reprimands are absolutely right. I think. Um, I think everybody is right to say that um, everyone can learn and grow and develop and come back better. Um, so how that looks for him, um, I, I don't know what that means. Uh, I don't know whether that means he will ever play cricket again or if he has a role um, for bringing youth through and, 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 and edu engaging and educating people. You know, I used to work in further education. I spent nearly every day telling people, this is over 10 years ago, telling people, 
what you put on the internet will be there forever for people to see and you can have problems because of it um so at 18 that's something you absolutely have to be aware of it's something that all kids who aspire to be international sports people uh, or personalities of any sort should be aware of and should be know about so if you can play that kind of role that would be great wouldn't it so yeah absolutely people should grow and learn but i i, I don't think um we can excuse it in any way whatsoever nor um you know be like Boris Johnson and come in and go, oh, that's a bit harsh. I think what they decide to do is what they decide to do. Because if they're going to go and make all their players come out with anti-racism slogans and T-shirts and campaigns, then, you know, they have to they have to make make examples of this, unfortunately for him, is my view. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think... Yeah, I think a lifetime ban is is very intense. Um, but I think when you know the, the the Twitter online social storm has been growing, when people like the prime minister get involved in situations and go, oh, you know that ban's a bit too much. Oh, um, is cricket racist, Simon? Are there any black people in cricket in the England setup? Obviously. There have been a few. Obviously, Michael Carberry was one of them, but he himself has come out recently and said that there's been a lot of examples within locker rooms that he's either witnessed or been um, the victim of, which isn't a, isn't a good look at all. And, and the problem with cricket, and I think there are a few sports like that, they have that kind of that middle to upper class kind of feeling about it. And I think, I mean, is it a situation where, I mean, we, we can't, we can't really, comment either way because we can just look at the, f- the facts and the statistics that there aren't there are surprisingly few black players for how many and and uh, you know there should be within um within english cricket uh you know we, we're not privy to anything that happens in locker rooms we're not privy to coaches decisions but um it does seem a little bit odd and you're getting people coming out now saying there are problems there was um i don't know the name of the, the man it was but i um there was a, a man who said that he was subjected to or witnessed uh, racist abuse on multiple occasions in Yorkshire cricket uh, last year, and it's still being investigated now. So I think there is a little bit of a problem. It's a, 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 certainly a bad look PR-wise for cricket, and uh, they've got a lot of cleaning up to do. And um, maybe it's about time. It sounds like it's one of those, um, you know, those recesses where, where you know things haven't really progressed as far as we'd like. Yeah, clearly work to do in this space. And I also found it curious that our Prime Minister might not be in favour of reprimands for um, historic comments. Um, But we'll leave that as that. Well, I Um, don't. What what does that mean? (laughs) Well, he has a lot of, quite frankly, overtly... Every show you take, you make it political. Every I'm not making it political. Show. I'm just make, pointing out a few. Um... Before the show, you love Boris. Every every episode, <laughs> you love him. I love mm. Boris Johnson. It's crazy the Prime Minister got involved uh, fairly quickly. I think Michael Carberry himself has said there's a lot of racism in cricket. People know there's racism in cricket. It's not, it's fairly obvious, uh, but he doesn't deserve a life ban. He deserves, he needs rehabilitation. And that's then going forward, he can then change and be better. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the key thing. And if we are going to be a, a, in a society that rehabilitates those that have offended, then you have to be able to give people the ability to change and to show 
um, you know, contrition and uh, remorse for their actions. And, you know, and yeah, hopefully this will lead to him, you know, possibly being in, involved in further education for for others and, you know, you know, telling people about his mistakes. I mean, he could have been like that as an 18-year-old. I said he's, he's probably been in very many multicultural dressing rooms since then, and that might not be the way he thinks. And if that's the case as well, then then he has to use that experience, use the experience of, of this last week to positively, you know, influence uh, the whole country. Yeah, and we, we've said it before, and we say it again on this podcast, don't put stupid shit on the internet or text it to your mates. We put this podcast out every week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but this is daft shit, not stupid oh, shit. Oh, sorry, daft shit, daft. <laughs> okay, yeah. All right, let's move on. Um, boxing side, you've got. I've I've got written here Paul and Mayweather. Yeah, so um, I say boxing with the loosest kind of, most broadest version of of, of the word because. It was a bit of a farce. Uh, as usual, Ben and I end up talking before the start and end up using most of our fire then when no <laughs> one's listening to us. But it was a farce. It was, I mean, I, I find myself constantly thinking, why do so many people watch this? It's ridiculous. I mean, for the first two rounds, I don't believe there was a punch thrown by Mayweather. He just tried to duck out of the way. Uh, probably because he knew if he finished off uh, Logan Paul, the popular YouTube sensation who uh, went to a suicide forest in Japan and laughed, by the way, was what he was most famous for. Um, so, yes, uh, it was a bit of a farce. It was a, um, I don't know. I don't know what to think. I think it was a nothing. In fact, there was no winner in this fight as well because um, there can only be a winner with a knockout. Uh, and obviously with Mayweather not bothering to punch him for the first two rounds, it was kind of slightly redundant. It's a farce. It's what boxing has become recently. Uh, a guy at work actually said to me, is it good because it brings a lot of focus onto boxing? But is it going to bring people, are people who tune in to watch Mayweather versus Logan Paul or Jake Paul versus some uh, Ben Askren, the old retired MMA fire, are these people then going to watch boxing regularly? Are they going to take up boxing because of boxing? No, they're watching it because it's the carnival. It's the, it's the, uh, you know, the, the freak show element, the, um, the, the surprise attraction. It's not because it's, you know, what boxing should be about, which is two athletes in superb condition trying to out foot. I'm getting all emotional trying to outfox each other <laughs> with, um, both, you know, physical prowess and, you know, intellectual cunning. And it's, that wasn't what I saw on Saturday. What yeah. do you think, Ben? Boxing, boxing is incredible. You watch recent gate, uh, recent fights, uh, Canelo versus Gennady uh, Golovkin. You watch um, uh, Fury versus Wilder. I mean, unbelievable boxing bouts. Uh, this was not a boxing bout. This was uh, basically a um, a showcase. You know, it was it was really just an exhibition match like the old days uh, for for Daniel Mayweather. What forty nine matches unbeaten, arguably one of the greatest boxers of all time, never lost. Uh, he made a hundred million dollars from this. What he referred to as a sparring bout. Uh, Jake Paul, Logan Paul, which one was it? Logan, Logan, not Paul Hogan, the legendary <laughs> crocodile Dundee, or oh, Hulk, Hulk Hogan, Hogan. or yes. Hulk Hogan. There's many Hogans. Um, 
Yeah, uh, Logan Paul, he is a YouTube sensation. <laughs> he came to the ring wearing a Charizard card, a Pokemon Charizard card, uh, one of only three in the world worth a million dollars, a holographic Charizard. I think I'm sure I mean, I've got one in the back you, of my car. You call him before. sensation, but let's not hype him too much. He, he's a YouTube success in that he's made a shit ton of money off YouTube. But he's also put some stupid shit on the internet, as Simon has already highlighted. So, yeah, yeah, very much so. But sensation, he's up there with the PewDiePie's of the world. He's he's yeah. absolutely massive YouTuber. Yeah. Mm. All right, let's move on from boxing chaos to Copa chaos, Simon. Yeah. So Copa America, the South American tournament. Everyone seemed to forget that that existed during COVID because. Um, like most tournaments, it was cancelled or moved around. It's actually happening within the next week. The 12th, I believe, is the first game. Um, or is it? Because uh, as it stands, uh, it was meant to be hosted by Argentina and Colombia, but both of those team, uh, both of those countries have had to pull out. Uh, Colombia, due to um, large amounts of rioting and protest because of economic issues within the country, I believe, and uh, Argentina because of a rising number of coronavirus cases. So, of course, what you do is then put it in Brazil where they've had no coronavirus cases. And, you know, um, yeah, so obviously 400,000 people have died from coronavirus in Brazil that, that we know of. Um, so uh, we've now got a situation where games are supposed to be going ahead. Uh, we've had rumours uh, being leaked recently from the Brazil squad saying that they... Uh, are contemplating pulling out, which I'm completely in understanding of because I think this has become a, a massive farce. And if there were these issues going ahead that maybe someone should have put their foot down a, a long time ago um, and, and rearranged again if necessary. It's annoying to rearrange these things. It's a bit like the Olympics, but if you're in this much chaos, it's, it's just not going to work, is it? So you're going to have this massive influx of people to Brazil, to a country that's already absolutely ravaged by coronavirus. So... Um, it's not looking good. Uh, I think Chile are another team that are thinking about pulling out. I believe Alexis Sanchez said that they were going to comment on it soon. Um, so I don't really know if it's going to go ahead, guys. I mean, in my opinion, should it? Probably not. I don't think you can swap host countries one week before the start of a tournament. Does it feel? Does it feel to you? Because it feels to me similar, not too similar, but the Olympics that the sports. Um, events just f want to forge ahead we've got they're trying to it's like they're trying to brush COVID under the carpet like this is 13 months now on our side of the world 13 months of, of disruption and death and, and carnage chaos it feels like sport, some sports events especially the copper america are just going no 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 we'll forge ahead we'll forge ahead brazil has been decimated by covid and bolsonaro we can get political about that more on mm. um but it's just it's crazy how they're trying to force it through it, would it would it get cancelled simon i think you've either got to think about cancelling it or at least moving it yeah. um where do you move it to that's the problem i think the south american calendar's already been um can you know uh, contract a little bit because um the various teams are actually playing world cup qualifiers now um two days before nearly a week before the start of another tournament so you could end up playing uh, a team in a, in a world cup qualifier and then play them again in the copa america so 
it, it obviously not an ideal situation. We've all had to adapt during this time, and I think football is no different. Um, I just think we've got to think think about what we're doing here. Brazil is a country. I'm getting all emotional again. Brazil is a country with very little protection against coronavirus. They've had very little in the way of uh, positive, um, from you know, positive uh, action from their president into you know. Uh, reducing the numbers of coronavirus or having any any care whatsoever about its own citizens. So um, now we, we're just expecting the tournament to be there. I don't know. It just leaves a sour taste in my mouth. And it's not yeah. just the uh, lemon Fanta I just drank. I, I watched a, a documentary say that I think shed, said a figure that um, every minute a space the size of a football pitch in Amazon is getting burnt down or whatever. So there's a lot of football pitches in the Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> well... How do we follow on from that? <laughs> yeah, on that note, let's uh, let's move to a different continent, shall we? Let's 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 focus on uh, Europe and um, the Europa and Champions yeah. League. Si. Yeah, that was so well done, Dan. You almost I sounded know. like you knew what I, you were referring to. I liked it. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, read last week. <laughs> so last week, um, Ben and I obviously did a, a Euro twenty twenty special. Uh, so we didn't really touch on any of the the um, these, the action that's been going on throughout all of sport within that week. As uh, hence the fact that a lot of our day, you know, stuff we've talked about today has been you know within ten two weeks to ten days old. A lot of it. Um, so the Europa League, uh, I'd like to talk about with Ben first, really. Um, so I said because we we barely talked about it. Um, Man United, they didn't turn up. Should they have even bothered going? How good was this? How good was this? Man United played Villarreal and it was the the penalty shootout to end all penalty shootouts. I think they they scored like 100 penalties each. Like it, They were the best penalty. At one point, Lindelof stepped up and just levered it top corner. Like They were unbelievable penalties. Um, but obviously, United uh, lost the penalty shootout and David De Gea the man himself in front of the watching Alex Ferguson put the penalty, uh, the keeper saved the penalty rather. Um, it was music to my eyes, music <laughs> to my ears, whichever one it is. Uh, it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, the only good thing to come out of United fans is how wonderful Marcus Rashford was at the very end when he spoke because he was absolutely terrible in the match. Awful, awful performance. Man United need a lot of players. Uh, there's been loads of conversation on Twitter this week about Man United with Man United fans saying what they need, uh, who who they need. And uh, there's talk, I'll say it now actually, there's talk that Rashford is going to have shoulder surgery after the Euros. So he might not be there for the start of the season. He was definitely injured, no, no question. This goes back a little bit to our talk last week about taking injured players to the Euro- yeah. <laughs> to the Euros. I mean, if he needs shoulder surgery and he's putting it off to get to this tournament, I mean, he's obviously not 100% fit, so that's a worry. I mean, he wasn't bad in the game the other day, um, but obviously he's no Jack Grealish. Uh, so, um, yeah, one thing I'd like to say. So Henderson, uh, the um, sub-keeper for, for Man United, uh, has a great history of saving penalties something like 12 out of 20 or 12 out of 24 penalties saved in his career which is an outstanding unbelievable statistic why not bring him on they didn't even use a sub if i believe if i'm rightly until the start of extra time anyway 
Yeah, Why they brought him on. They brought one matter on to take penalties, but can you take David De Gea off four straight years of being Man United's player of the season? The great David De Gea, he earns £350,000 a week, highest paid player at Man United. Can you pull a Louis van Gaal and take him off the pitch for Dean Henderson? Um, how long ago was De Gea player of the season? That was That's not a recent uh, 18, thing. I mean... 18, 17, 16, 15. That's not too yeah. long ago. Oh, man. He, in my opinion, De Gea has been poor, average to poor in a lot of games these last few years. He's number two. He's he number is. two now. And I think we said this the other week. It shows Henderson maybe has a lot of work to get up with if he's not been able to beat De Gea out. Because, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say De Gea has been anything special in, in recent years. So, um, yeah, I mean... I, a lot of mistakes, I think, from Ole. You you waxed lyrical about him uh, a few months ago, and and maybe you're the Ben praise has once again compounded and jinxed uh, a sportsman. Do you not see why I now praised him? <laughs> He's a United manager. I would say though that uh, they they should have won the game. Villarreal were wonderful, and they were also managed by Unai Emery, who's who's won about seven thousand Europa leagues. He's he's the Europa League manager. I think he won it three years straight with Sevilla yeah. not long ago. Uh, Villarreal played an incredible game. Albiol at the back was a pleasure to watch. And also the new lad uh, that Man United looking at, the other defender. Um, there was some there was some good performances, but United should not be losing Europa League finals, whether I'm a Liverpool fan or not. United are too big a club to be there. Buy Jadon Sancho, buy a goddamn defensive midfielder and go and challenge. Yeah. Well, um, that sounds about... All we have time for for our roundup of the uh, week plus 10 days to 14 days <laughs> just gone. We're not going to do Champions League then. We've got to do Champions League. Oh, Champions League is the biggest game in football, Dan, apart from maybe the you World You kind Cup of final. just looked at me as if it was time to move on. We did no, the I thought you were just going to go segue into our, and now the Champions uh, League. So you wrote Europa and Champions League all on the same line, side. So I thought it was part yeah. of the same segment. Apologies. Yeah. So, so tell us about the Champions League, side. <laughs> Sorry, I had to go off microphone to laugh for a minute. Um, so, the Champions League, biggest game in world football, uh, club football, I'd say. Maybe not yeah. international football. Um, and once again, was it a mistake by Pep this time? Did his hubris come to roost? I mean, no striker, no defensive midfielder until the 60-something minute. <sighs> did they turn up? I don't think they did. First game. First game in 60, he didn't play a defensive midfielder. He didn't play either Rodri or Fernandinho in the Champions League final. Are you on drugs, Pep? What are you doing? You have Rodri, who's been quality all season. You have Fernandinho, arguably the best defensive midfielder the Premier League's ever seen, up with Kante and Makaleli. What you're doing, Pep, you lost the you lost the Champions League final. Uh Foden, great assist. Even Havertz scored. You know you, you've lost bad if Havertz scored. He's had a woeful season, which made up for it scoring the only goal in the Champions League final win. Uh, but a couple of good things. Reese James was excellent. Mount was excellent. Stones was pretty strong. They're good signs for me with the Euros just uh, around the corner. Well, we shall see. Coming soon. Ooh. There we go. Now that is the end of our wrap up of the week to 10 to 14 days just gone. Uh, thank you for that, Sai and Ben. So we're going to move on to a couple of bigger subjects now. We've got um, 
a follow-up to the Euros, your Euros Euro 2020 slash 21 special last week that you did. And of course, much has happened since then, as we mentioned at the top of the show. Before we dive into that, I want to spend a bit of time uh, talking about Formula One. And Simon has just killed over and disappeared off screen. Come back, Si. There's lots to talk about. Um, we were back in Baku uh, after a hiatus because of coronavirus last year. We weren't able to be there, sadly. And Baku in Azerbaijan, Sai, uh, for those uninitiated to Formula One, it is a street circuit. So it's around the streets of Baku. Now, it followed Monaco, the street circuit, the famous street circuit, streets of Monaco, um, which we um, unanimously decided was a dreary and boring race. Baku essentially said, here you go, Monaco, hold my beer. I've got some excitement for you. And uh, and, and boy, did it deliver. As a, as a total, as a whole, as a race, it probably was, it's not going to be a go down as a classic. But there were a number of incidents in the race that absolutely will go down as classic moments and classic incidents. And I'd like to just talk about just a few of them um, with you today. Uh, so I'd like to talk about uh, the tyres, tyre gate, Ben. We're going to talk about the tyres because there was a couple of big issues with tyres, wasn't there? We're going to talk about Sebastian Vettel. And I know you're a big fan, Ben, so I'd, I'd like to pick your brains on that. We're going to talk about a bit about Mercedes and Bottas in particular. We're going to talk about that restart with two laps to go. Uh, we're going to talk about Red Bull, Perez. Uh, and then, of course, something that came up in the news conference with uh, Hamilton and Vettel as well, that Ben, you picked up on on Twitter, which uh, tickled our uh, fancy taste buds with uh, you know what the future may or probably, sadly, won't hold. Um, but let's start at the top of this. So a bit of an overview. Um, the race was uh, fairly exciting for a street circuit. F2 race was fantastic. The Formula 2 race in early in the day was fantastic. It's a great circuit to watch cars fly around. Um, they've slightly reprofiled one of the corners after Charles Leclerc binned it into uh, on the way into the castle last year. I think that was in qualifying, wasn't it, Ben? Uh, last year. Uh, so they slightly reprofiled that, so it's a bit quicker round. But actually, it's a really enjoyable circuit to watch cars race round. Um, but because it's a street circuit, the walls come thick and fast and it's got an epic um, long straight where they're just flat out for like 45 seconds, I think it is. Um, maybe less than that, I don't know. Um, but anyway, essentially there was two big tyre incidents in the race. Uh, Lance Stroll heading down on one of the straights just lost a tyre, got a puncture and hit the wall really, really hard. Um, it's one of those accidents you don't want to see. Uh, you know, it was a big impact. Um, he's fine, got out of the car, uh, all good. Um, but the same then happened to um, almost a identical accident happened to um, Max Verstappen, only he went the opposite way into a different wall. Actually, no, I think it was the same direction. Anyway, can't remember. But uh, suffice to say, it was both left rear tyres both seem to get obliterated and we'll talk about that in a moment <clears throat> as a result during Stroll's crash there's a safety car um, where teams could have pitted if they were worried about tires no one chose to pit or nearly nearly no one chose to pit during that time certainly none of the top teams um, and then come Max Verstappen's crash the race got red flagged with two laps to go and then the decision was to be a grid start so it was an all-out essentially a sprint finish uh, sprint being the pertinent word there we'll find out in a moment where uh, there was two laps to the flag and Perez came in 
won the race. And uh, yeah, let's talk about that. So Ben, the tyres, um, we've seen this before. We saw it at Silverstone. Um, uh, was it, la- it wasn't last year, was it the year before where essentially the tyres all just started to fail? And there's people coming off. I think Hamilton finished it on three three wheels, didn't he, in the race? Yeah, uh, it, the iconic moment where Hamilton wins the race with three uh, on three wheels uh, while being chased down. Tiregate, you know, yeah. Pirelli have come out quick, Dan, and said it was not tire uh, failure. It yeah. was, in fact, debris. Yeah, and they're maintaining the debris. Now, there's no doubt that Pirelli uh, will uh, do a thorough investigation and, you know, if it comes out that there was an issue with the tyres, it's likely going to come out. So we're likely going to find out about it. But um, so far, they're very adamant that it was de- debris that caused a like-for-like accident, almost frame-by-frame frame <laughs> copy. Uh, and at those speeds, it's frankly terrifying that that can happen. Now, there's bigger, wider concerns about what happened during those incidents in terms of time to safety car, time to red flag. You know, you've got drivers sitting in very fast, precarious positions without their belts on, walking across the track. <clears throat> but yeah, so there's, there's a lot of questions raised around ongoing developments in safety in F1. Um, but yeah, what, what do you think that's going to mean for teams going forwards, Ben? Because if they see a tyre failure, no one pitted. Should they have pitted earlier on during the first safety car? We've seen tyre failures for years, but they're pushing tyres to a different level at the moment. Uh, Pirelli, for this race, did drop a compound down from the previous year. So they all, they were racing a softer tyre. Maybe the car's teams decided to push them a little bit longer. They were going to, some some uh, basically, I think Russell pitted on the first lap because he was going to then take the hards all the way to the end of the race. So that's how long they thought the yeah. hard tyre was going to go. I mean, yeah. thankfully, Russell um, didn't die. But the problem is, if, if a tyre blows up and you're going uh, 360 kph and a tyre blows up and you fly into the, uh, the fencing, go through the fencing and kill three marshals, well, you know, Pirelli uh, won't be too happy about that day, will they? So they have yep. to look. They have to look at the compound. They have to do a, a thorough investigation. Uh, I think um, it was Crofty saying that they will do kind of like a black box investigation with an aeroplane. They piece it together and yep. find out what went wrong, real you know, high technical, much like the F1 boys are boys and girls rather, uh, Monaco should be ashamed of itself. And I, I felt bad for Monaco coming on the back with uh, Baku straight after it because yeah. it made Monaco look like a shit show. I think Monaco should be 10 times three lap races. I think they should race for three laps, park it, race for three laps, park it. What a great event that was. Basically it's three laps at the end of the race. Can't. I mean, it was, but you can't race at Monaco. That's the point, isn't it? So yeah, but you can crash. It still wouldn't work. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, true. Too. Um, I, I think, yeah, and and, I, and Christian Horner came on the radio, didn't he, and, and, and told Michael Massey that they had zero warning of that tyre failure. Now, uh, you mentioned about the data, the black box, uh, the, the forensic nature of these investigations after accidents. Let's not underestimate the amount of data that the teams and the FIA have about every single thing that has happened on, on the car. These are gigabytes and terabytes of data that are pouring off the car every race. So they, they're going to be able to find out pretty quick exactly, almost exactly what happened to that tyre. So they'll be able to be pretty conclusive. But yeah, as we say at this stage, they're pointing towards debris. So watch yeah. this space, I think. 
Well, I think I think there will obviously be a, a long conversation about it, a long discussion. But they're going to go and race now the Paul Ricard at France, and and all will be forgotten. They'll probably just take a harder compound to Paul Ricard, and it'll just destroy the race. I think the actual race itself and the context it has in the seasons worth discussing. Dan, going into this race, Hamilton and Verstappen were neck and neck. Verstappen's tires blow out. Hamilton, he's got the race there in his hand. What does he do? He just blows his brakes first yeah. corner, flies on and finishes last place. I mean, unbelievable. I didn't know what I was watching. Talk about an exciting formula. I love motor racing, but you're watching this, the great Lewis Hamilton, he's let his, his brakes lock up. I'm screaming. The commentators go, what's going on? <laughs> Perez has taken the lead. So there's two things to talk about here. And what and that is essentially, which is... It, is often used as a derogatory term for drivers, but I think it's fair to use in this case. And that is the Red Bull and Mercedes wingmen of um, Perez and of Bottas. Number you know, they're two. both rapid, or the number two drivers. They're both rapid drivers. You know, they deserve fast seats. Uh, but Red Bull have struggled a lot in recent years with having that number two driver or that second driver being supportive, being up there bothering Mercedes and taking points for the constructors and for the champ and the drivers' championship. Now, I, I think I texted you during the race and said that Perez has done more for Verstappen's title chances in eight laps than Albon did in in two seasons for Red Bull. And and they've got they've got a fantastic formula at the moment. And I think Verstappen, the, the person he probably needs to start watching out for is Perez himself uh, at some point. Um, but the opposite was true now for Mercedes. Bottas just was not there. Now, for Bottas' sake, he's hoping that they'll find something wrong with his car um, and the setup. Um, but it didn't work for him. Whatever it was did not work from this weekend. So he was not there to to back Hamilton up, um, which turned out wouldn't have made the shittest bit of difference because, like you said, on that restart, let's talk about that. So the restart. So this is a, a setting with the brakes. It was a very un-Mercedes, un-Hamilton uh, way to end their race, wasn't it? Because there was a conspiracy of um, hardware issue, um, well, not hardware issue, but hardware um, misuse and a driver error. Hardware so, misuse. It makes it sound like drugs. Basically, yeah, the, the, his story that he, he accidentally yeah. flicked the brakes off. Okay, yeah, garbage. Absolute well, crap. So what they do is for the warm-up lap, they have a break, They change their brake bias so essentially all the effort goes into the front brakes yeah. for when they're warming up the tyres. They can put a lot of heat into the brakes, which radiates into the tyres, which makes them sticky, blah, blah, blah. Apparently that didn't get turned off, so the brake bias didn't even back out. So he went into that first corner and his quote on the radio was, remember, guys, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, that was before he binned it. <laughs> yeah, and he then just locked up, went straight on, uh, thought he had the jump on Perez, and he did. If he'd have made it stuck, um, stick, he'd, he'd have been into the lead. Perez would have got him on the next the straight. Perez would have got uh, him on the straight in the next race. Either the next way, lap. he'd be in the lead of the championship right now. As it happens, as a result of that, um, the standings are now uh, Verstappen still on 105 points, Lewis Hamilton still on 101 points, so four points apart. The Constructors' Championships, right? Mercedes, 148 points, Red Bull, 174 points. So Red Bull with Perez in that seat, they are making gains and it's gonna and it's gonna do well for them. 
Yeah, it, when people talk about the you know the Schumacher Hackenen, the uh, the the Mansler, the uh, Prost Senna's, um, the you know Schumacher Alonso recently, this is a battle. Hamilton Vettel, Hamilton Verstappen, this is becoming a huge battle. Um, story of the season so far. I've no idea which way it is going to go. But tune into Formula One at the moment because I it is fantastic stuff. Absolutely, and and just for a, a few more stats on Mercedes, um, their fifty five race run of points finishes ended with that race, fourth longest streak of all time. Lewis Hamilton's fifty four race scoring streak also ended, and the last failure to score was in Austria twenty eighteen. That's so much consistency. He just never crashes, yeah. does he? Bottas is so awful. it was rare, and it's made like you said, it's it's blown everything wide open. There's a lot to watch. Um, I just want to give you um, a, a couple of things. The only other thing to say about uh, Baku is it's only been on the calendar since 2016, relatively new to the F1 circuit, and it's uh, so it's only the second time that Red Bull have taken the top spot with Daniel Ricciardo in 2017 so both essentially their number two drivers taking the top spot both times red bull have hit it which is quite interesting in itself hamilton just the once talk about vettel ben ben you're you're a bit of a vettel super fan and um i've not always warmed to him hugely uh very much appreciate his racing when we see him race uh there was times when i loved watching him race in red bull there was times when i just didn't enjoy watching him race in red bull and since then he's gone off the boil a bit he had a real tough time with ferrari but we saw a a bit of a sneak peek under the hood of a of a, a refreshed rejuvenated old vettel didn't we yeah, let's be f- uh, first correct you. He had a pretty good time at Ferrari. He nearly won a world championship, and he should have probably won a world championship at Ferrari. And Ferrari of mind, late, I should say. Ferrari of late. Yeah, bear in mind, Fernando Alonso yeah. went to Ferrari as well after his days at Renault and didn't win any yeah. titles there either. So Ferrari have maybe let down two of the best drivers in the last 20 years. Um, Vettel and Hamilton have basically won half of every single, well over half of every single race since you know he's, he's, he's won over 50 races. Vettel has... I think he's like fourth or fifth on the leaderboard of all the, st- the statistics. He's won four uh, world championships. I love Sebastian Vettel. I love the comedy, the way he is. He's a joker. He's funny. In his early days, he was annoying because he'd put his, his his finger up at like number one. Obviously, living in England, there was always uh, a bit of friction with the fast German drivers. You know, there's always a bit of banter there as well. Uh, but Vettel just rolled back the years. He's actually... Yeah since Baku has been a race leading on the overall points in Baku. He is the best driver around Baku, period. Yeah. Uh, and he was, was brilliant. And, you know, in uh, what formula was it? It was in the Indy 500. The commentator called in to the cockpit before as the race was going on. He called in, I think it was uh, DK, uh, Kanan, uh, sorry, TK, Tony Kanan. They, they called into the cockpit. At the end of this race, the, the commentator called into, one of the commentators, one of the presenters called into Vettel's cockpit and said, so you've won the race. How do you, how do you feel? He's like, I'm not going to talk about it now. Who gave you my number? I thought it was just absolutely <laughs> fantastic at the end. Like Formula One are trying to add those little bits in, yeah. trying to add it. Sky Sports, absolutely. you wankers. Um, but <laughs> I, I thought it was a good race, especially towards the end. Uh, thankfully, there was no one hurt. Stroll yeah. and Verstappen could have been hit uh, yeah, badly, yeah. badly Big injured. Moment. And um, let's let's uh, stick with. Oh, and of course, let's not let's have an honourable mention to Gasly, third on the third on the podium. Um, and that that last little um, tussle between Gasly, Leclerc, and Norris, 
so exciting to watch those three race together and you know they are the future of f1 the the immediate future of f1 and watching them race cleanly fairly but elbows out was was exciting in those yeah yeah leclerc redeemed himself um, redeemed himself from last year's pole uh, pole fiasco he probably should have got pole last year he crashed um got pole this year uh the ferrari they've come out of nowhere they actually got a chance at winning some races uh paul ricard not my favorite circuit but could be fireworks let's hope so uh, we'll talk more about that another day i just want to come on to something that you you pointed out ben uh, and this was something that came up in a news conference so this is our final word on f1 so you can start to wake up a bit now uh, and come mm, to and prepare yourself for the euros conversation um but little tease and actually to call it a tease gives it too much uh, gravitas it was a, a bit of a throwaway statement from hamilton I, you know i think for him to be planning that far ahead is is just unheard of but he made a comment about um how much of a mean team him and Vettel would be at Le Mans yeah I mean he said the words were uh, I don't think I'll ever he was asked by a reporter do you think you and Vettel race together again uh, now Vettel's in form they're basically like do you want to drop Bottas and put Vettel in number two because <laughs> um, Bottas is so slow uh, <laughs> but uh, they, he said, oh, I don't think we'll race together in Formula One, but you never know. Uh, we, Le Mans, poor, we'd murder Le Mans, wouldn't we, Seb? And I was just like, oh my God. I, I don't imagine? joke. Don't joke. Hamilton and Vettel at Le Mans with a box of red wine in my hand. Uh, <laughs> that would be, that would be the weekend. days. Um, so it got me on a little hunt anyway to think about um, F1 drivers that have uh, made their way into Le Mans. So it's usually the way it goes. We talked about this before on the show, that kind of that kind of transition out of F1 into, into endurance racing. And um, these are some of the uh, drivers that have won Le Mans, that have come from F1. Brendan Hartley didn't yeah, have a great he F1 good, He wasn't good in F1. No, but in, in the Toyota. Uh, Martin Brundle. Yeah. Uh, Nico Hülkenberg. Uh, Alexander Wertz, um, uh, many others, Fernando Alonso famously recently, um, and Graham Hill. Now, there's only five uh, F1 champions who have also won Le Mans, most recent being Fernando Alonso. Before It's something like 40 years since the last one, I think. And only one of them, there's only one driver who has ever completed the fabled triple crown that we talked about a couple of weeks back. And that is the Monaco F1 uh, race, the um, Indy 500 race, and the and the tw- uh, 24 Hours of Le Mans. And uh, that is Graham Hill. Is it really? Yes, it is. Oh, Graham Hill, the only person to do that three. Uh, and of course, Fernando Alonso tried his um, slightly, uh, you know, we'll failed attempt to Indy 500. We'll continue to try. Um, yeah, we expect to see him in Indy 500 again. Um, so it's not unheard of, but both Hamilton and Vettel to go in and then win would take five to seven. So, you know... It doesn't happen. It's not a regular occurrence, but man, would we love to see that. So Hamilton, Vettel, we know you're fans of the show. If you're listening, sort it out and get involved in Le Mans and let us know when you do. Anyway, that brings us of our uh, look back at Baku. 
And uh, yeah, I was excited. Look forward to France. But of course, then we've got our back to back at Austria. And then Silverstone, I think, follows Austria, doesn't it, Ben? So some exciting racing to come. Sai, I expect you'll be tuning in now after that report from Azerbaijan. Yes. Which used to be known as the European Grand Prix. When it first, in 2016, it was the European Grand Prix. Since then, it's the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. Is Azerbaijan in Europe? Well, yeah, apparently so. So, Sai, the Euros. Talk to us about Europe and the Euros 2020 uh, slash 21, because you did a whole show last week. So you think there's nothing left to say. But actually, that's not true, because since then, there's been a number of friendlies, lots of talk about starting 11. Take it away. Yes, Dan, there is always more to talk about with the Euros. So I apologize for anyone that was hoping to avoid more Euro chat because Ben and I are going to chew the fat over a few other things, a lot of which we failed to mention last week because I think we, you know, we wanted to keep the show under about six hours. So we, we cut <laughs> out, we pruned a little bit out. Um, so first and foremost, I kind of was going to start with a little bit of a loving for the, the one home nation that we haven't really talked about, but I think I'm going to mix it around a little bit. So, um, I'm going to start talking about booing just because I don't want to end on such a sour note. Um, Dan, obviously you can, you can wade in here as well. Cause I think this is, this goes beyond, um, you know, football anyway. So, um, during the uh, games recently played, the England friendly games, and at the end of the Premier League season, and as I found out just a minute ago, um, the Republic of Ireland football team were also booed uh, for kneeling before the start of the game um, to highlight areas of social injustice. Um, so we've obviously talked ad nauseum about this over the last however many shows we've done, you know, talking about taking the knee and highlighting issues within our country and, and abroad. Um, but what do we think about booing? Ben, what, what do you think about booing? Wow. Have, have, have we talked about, uh, we, I say the public, uh, sport fans, podcasters, up and down the country, around the world, talked about racism this last week. So I'll tell you where I am and, and I'll tell it clean. Uh, why would you boo a knee? I mean, it takes a lot of energy to boo anyone. I, I don't understand what you're gaining from booing. Don't boo it. Just don't boo it. Let them kneel. Absolutely fine. Crack on. Get your beer. Enjoy, enjoy your day in the sun. The gesture itself has been heavily diluted for me. Now, that's where I stand, and I, I can't say why people are booing it. I, I, I think that's for me maybe actually just racist but um so i don't think it's good at all but what i'm saying and and i say this i think the gesture has been watered and diluted down if you just kneel at the beginning of every single game what is it now achieving when when colin kaepernick did this in the nfl it sent ripples through the nfl through the um the political system in america and it's been adopted over here and then it sent waves when it happened over here Every single game, a kneel, every single game, a kneel, is that helping education around racism? Is it helping make a stand? I think the gesture has been diluted heavily, and I'm not sure we need to still be doing it. I um, I slightly odds with that, actually, Ben. And I think, well, first and foremost, yeah, if people are booing it, that's absolutely not time to stop doing it. Um, yeah. because you know it, it goes okay fine we'll, we'll quieten down but um 
no, I think it's still, we're still talking about it. You said it's been talked about. We're still talking about people taking the knee before big sporting events. And if one person goes away from that football match thinking about racism or institutional racism or how they might respond to uh, something they see in public or see on Twitter or see wherever in the media differently, then it's had a positive impact. It's been worth doing. So I think to say it's been diluted is probably fair. And I think there's undoubtedly lip service being done at some events. You know, we see it, saw it in F1 appallingly handled. Uh, and, and and now you question whether F1 are doing it, you know, because they actually want to make a change. Um, and then, you know, there's the bigger questions of beyond the take beyond the kneeling, what's happening behind the scenes is change happening. You know, that's what is important as well. But if the conversations, if it's still forcing a conversation about racism in sport, why stop it? It's still, it's still being effective, whether it's sending large ripples or small ripples, they're still ripples. Yeah, but there's been some players in the Premier League that have refused to do it. Uh, Wilfred Zaha, only a couple of games ago, um, stood during it saying that it's been diluted. You know, it, it, it doesn't, doesn't have any effect. It doesn't say anything. It's not. It's an empty gesture now. Uh, we need to move on to the next gesture, something bigger, something stronger. Um, that was Wilfred Zaha, a black player himself. It's, it's, very, it's very easy for us to talk. None of us have ever been subject to, to uh, institutional or fundamental racism. We never have and we'll never will. We're in an incredibly privileged position in life for that. But I just don't think that this will make a full change. And now the booing's crazy. I mean, why are you booing, man? It takes so much effort. Just drink your beer, enjoy your football game. Like, come on, what, what you do, don't boo it. But I still think we need to look at ways to increase, make bigger gestures, make, make um, bigger statements going forward. Yeah, I mean, I, my my final point you touched on there is essentially it, it's very easy for us to comment on this. We're, we're three white dudes who who are you know the, the most privileged group of people in society. Um, I think, um, but uh, yeah, so so clearly more work needs to be done, um, and we we absolutely should be making change institutionally and organisationally. And the gestures, if they promote the conversation, then I, I see that as a good thing. But it's very easy for me to say that, like you say, from from my position here. So it also kind of stands to reason there's a little bit more history to this as well in terms of, uh, I believe at the beginning of the last football season, it went from a Black Lives Matter um, represented um you know, uh, gesture to more of a broader kick racism out of football, you know, um, kind of message that was being portrayed. So a lot of people who've come out in opposition to it have tried to make it into a big political issue. Um, this obviously happened with Colin Kaepernick and the kneeling during the national anthem uh, in, in American football. Um, a lot of people who don't like this or don't like what things stand for try to change the narrative and try and create an alternative kind of um thought process that can galvanize support against an ideal and i think this is what unfortunately the, the needs become in some regards um the other thing that's very important is i think the influence of gareth southgate on this whole thing cannot be 
um, denied. He is someone who, I mean, tactically, maybe not the greatest, but he's come out as a real leader in this situation. He came out front and center after it happened. Um, you know, he stood up and said, the players and I talked it through. We decided as a team to go ahead with it. So, you know, there was the option that if the, if the players didn't think that this was a good idea, that they wouldn't have done it. Uh, but they thought, you know, we stand, we like what the message stands for. We believe in the message. We want to kneel for this and continue this gesture. Um, so to boo your own players, I mean, as Ben says, you don't have to, no one's saying you have to cheer. No one's saying you have to do it yourself. You can just sit there quietly. If you don't believe in the message or you're fed up of the gesture itself because it's overused or, or, or whatever, you don't have to boo. If you're booing your own players, you're part of the problem. It's because you have an agenda against the ideal and it's pretty reprehensible. I mean, six players, I think it was in the second game who were booed were, um, were black players. Um, you know, so that's over 50% of the starting team. I mean, it's a bad look for England fans and not just England fans. I said it happened even Villa fans. And, you know, I, I obviously I take pride in my football team, but there was a small minority of Villa fans that were booing Tyrone Mings and the others that were doing it in our game against Chelsea. I mean, it's a bad look. If you don't like it, don't, don't boo it. Well, um, I think, you know, vent about is one thing, but don't boo. I think as Ben was saying, you know, if you're booing it, there's a good chance you are racist. Um, but if you take away the people who are racist and those that are left booing, you know, eventually, essentially, as you've just detailed, they're taking their issues out on the wrong people. <laughs> you know, they're taking it on the players. Um, let's, it should be taking it on on the, the you know the billionaires that run run the show. Essentially, now you look. Let's take Formula One for example. Uh, we talked about it at length, but they're doing this. We race as one, but they still go and race in places around the world with atrocious um, human rights records. Uh, arguably, including um, Azerbaijan, as it as it happens. Um, so, and, and Saudi Arabia this year. So. It's, it's things like that. And what are they doing at grassroots level to get people into sport, representation, all this kind of thing? That's where efforts should be targeted in terms of um, uh, fan anger, fan uh, booing should be at that, not at the players on the pitch who are doing it, uh, going, this is how we want to demonstrate support. This is what our voice, let us use it. Don't boo us. We're just about to do bloody Euros. Come on, get on our side. Yeah, uh, and and Azerbaijan have openly tried to make changes in the way they run their country, and Baku apparently is a, a beautiful place to go and visit, and they're trying to make changes. Saudi Arabia, absolute hole. I definitely won't watch that Formula One race. Um, racism is going to be a big focus in Euro 2020 tournament. Okay, good. There's going to be a big focus on racism. There's going to be a big focus on stamping it out. It definitely won't stamp it out because the only way to root out racism is through education, is through complete mindset and change. And, and there's no way a diluted kneeling gesture will do that. But echoing what Sai said, I mean, don't boo it. I mean, come on, you're there for a football match. Save your booing for the shit England players. Like, save your <laughs> booing for when Kane is taking corners. Save your booing for Connor Cody starting. Like, come on, like, you've got booze saved up. Use them properly. Yeah, how Sorry. can you how can you cheer for someone in a match? How can you how can you cheer on Bakary Saka scoring the winning goal against um, against Austria, having just booed him for having the temerity to kneel at the beginning of a football match? Yeah. It becomes farcical. I, 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 mean, I hope it's a minority side. I believe it is, 
but it's obviously a vocal enough minority that can be heard during a game. And and that's with, in various games, other fans trying to drown them out with applause, with cheering and stuff like that. So they're still being heard. I know a boo goes a lot further than a cheer probably, but I mean, it's obviously a vocal enough minority to be, to be heard. Now, I have not got tickets for the Euros, unfortunate enough, but I will be watching England versus Croatia at St. Mary's Stadium on Sunday. So I'm, I'm in the Kingsland Road end. They've got three big screens set up and there's going to be sort of 5,000 or more fans watching the England game. The atmosphere is going to be electric and I am going to applaud the kneeling and a very journalistic mind, very excited, interested to see what the reaction will be. I think it will be positive. I hope it will be positive. And I hope the game is going to be positive as well. Let's <laughs> hope so. So, yeah, we're about the Euros, and uh, but a few days away now. Um, we've had a few friendlies uh, since your show last week. So, si. how, how have we been doing? And, you know, after all the talk during your, your show last week, there's still more to talk about this, about the team that's going to start on Sunday. Yes, I think there's a lot of conjecture. Is Jack Grealish going to start? Is uh, Phil Foden going to start with his new silvery blonde Gaza-esque hairstyle? Gaza. Um, yeah, it's coming so, home. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I'm. I said to Ben and the other day, and I mean, I am. I'm more of a jaded England fan of years of disappointment, and I suppose we all are, to be honest. I, I think we're going to come out negatively. I think instead of attacking a Croatian team made up of aging veterans and younger players instead of going for the throat I think we're gonna play it safe maybe we scrape a 1-0 win or something like that or we draw um but yeah I'm not holding out much hope for it I know it sounds awful because I really want we've got such good players but I just Southgate is a manager I just I think he's a negative manager no absolutely wrong it's coming home Simon (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely coming home. We're winning the Euro 2020 Championship. I am so excited. I saw Phil Foden's hair. Phil Foden? Is that the right name? Uh, yeah. Phil Foden. Uh, he doesn't look like a Phil, does he? Uh, Foden. <laughs> I saw his, his haircut today. Gaza 96. He's bringing it back. I'm going to be playing uh, three lines on his shirt all the way to St. Mary's on Sunday. I am super excited. I saw some behind-the-scenes footage today of the England camp, and wow. Squad spirits are very high. There's a feeling, there's a vibe, there's a positivity. Yes, we're going to play 17 defenders, but I just think we've got enough. And Harry Kane, tell me, Simon, that Harry Kane is not going to score at least four goals in this tournament. I mean, he's, and we're going to talk about this a bit later, he's one of my favourites for the uh, top goal scorer in the competition. I think he has to be. I think anyone who's on penalties, anyone who's, uh, you know, a top striker, um, you know, you've got to be high on the list. He is the favourite, I believe, on Paddy Power. Um, is he? You can see where I bet mainly. Top yeah, um, yeah oh. above all the, above Lukaku, above Mbappe um, and various others. So, yeah, I think he's going to score a, a few goals. I mean, this group is, is is difficult for us, but we should be doing, you know, if if we don't get any any more than, you know, if we don't get any less than, than uh, you know, seven points. So it's going to be a disappointing thing if we get less than that, I'd say. I think seven points is okay. I think uh, I think the last game is Scotland, if that's right. No, I think... uh, that's the middle game. Oh, so it's Czech Republic the last game? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So if we get two wins, then the Czech Republic game, I'd like to see uh, a couple of fringe players come in. That's when I want to see Saka playing. That's when I want to see Grealish playing. You know, those fringe players that aren't going to play. I hate you. 
Um, <laughs> I'm joking. How exciting is Grealish? Talk to me. Yeah. How exciting is Isai? I think you've got to play him. I think he's he's probably, no f- apart from Kane, his first name on the team sheet, in my opinion. I think he's better than Foden. I think he offers more than Foden. I mean, I think they're both fantastic players. I'd play both of them. But I think Grealish is the difference maker. And hopefully Gareth sees that because, you know, I'm I'm still not convinced he does. Um, but yeah, I think we'll win this group. But actually, having looked at it a lot recently, do we want to win this group? Because we will play the runners-up, I believe, of Group F if we win our group. So, so we would play means... France, Portugal or Germany in the round of 16. Or the surprise package Hungary. Yes, it will be one of those teams. <laughs> Wait, so um, if we come second, who do we play? That's a good question. I haven't looked that far. But I believe right. if we if we don't win our group, we would then meet one of Group F in the quarterfinals. So mm. it would be a round ahead. So I suppose in essence, I mean, you're going to play the best teams. You might as well play them earlier rather than later. But um, yeah scary proposition to to have one of those waiting for you even if it's not the best team in that group yeah see my five pound bet uh for this euros is on england north macedonia final <laughs> is that is that is that wayward sir no i think that's that's gonna happen okay has to good happen. good yeah, yeah good i think the north macedonia element is probably more realistic than the england element <laughs> right now you've worried um, me I, I just shouted it's coming home and you said our first game could be france after the group stage we're gonna get we, how, how does any team get past Kante? I mean, I mean, realistically, the only thing is, I was listening um, on Talksport again. Oh my god, I just keep banging about Talksport at the moment. So they really do owe me some sort of commission. Um, they were talking a little bit in detail about France and if there were any big weaknesses in their team. Uh, Benzema coming back in, slight change of formation, maybe the only weakness. So, I mean, if you have a weakness where a fantastic striker comes back into the fold for the first (laughs) time in five years, that is not the biggest weakness in my book. So, yeah, France are a big team to worry about. Uh, I think if you're going to play France, you want to play them late and hope that, you know, a few grueling games have, have, you know, taken out of their squad and they're down to playing players like Moussa Sissoko or someone like that. Uh, rather than you know their their fab front three or or you know some of their good good defensive players, I saw a brilliant, which is now viral, video today released of an airplane uh, airplane flight, um, and Griezmann is is sat there um, saying, "Look, I, I play with Newcastle on Football Manager 2021, uh, and I've just signed you, Killian. I've signed you uh, for 157 million euros." <laughs> and Mbappe looks across and goes. It's pretty cold there, though, isn't it? <laughs> like, it was deadpan, it was quality. The atmosphere, the Euros, all these little videos coming out, Foden's hair, the positivity. I am in Euro fever. I think I'm going to buy a retro shirt, Si. I'm going to do mm. it. I'm going to I'm gonna splooge 30 pounds on a, on a, one of those red retro, one of the Gascoigne ones with the England three lines in the middle. Uh, I'm so excited. Ask me some questions about the Euros. I'm so excited. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm just really excited. Um, before we just go into questions, I wanted to actually give a little bit of love to a team that we haven't really talked much about. Now, before we, we started last week, we did talk about um, maybe doing a bit of a home nations focus. We did talk about Wales and our very different opinions on them. You, for some reason, believing that they're going to make it out of their group and me then watching them play Albania and seeing how terrible they are, think they won't. Um so let's talk about Scotland. What's your thoughts on Scotland? Because I have to say, looking at them now, and I know they've got a difficult group. They're in our group as well. I think they're they've got a good chance of, of potentially, you know, causing a few upsets. And 
getting out of the group stage because there are some good players. You look at, you know, you've got Robertson, McTominay, McGinn, you've got Armstrong and Shea Adams from your neck of the woods, uh, Tierney. That's some makings of a decent team. I mean, I don't think they're going to score many goals, but they've got some skill. And I, I think they really play well as a team and they know their positions. They know what their jobs are. And I think they're comfortable with that. Uh, What's your thoughts? Yeah, Scotland are the second favourites in our group. Uh, I think us and Scotland go through, and I think Croatia might even go through with the third qualifiers. We might have three from our group. I genuinely think we win the group on seven or nine points. That's the game that maybe I worry about. It might be a draw um, because they're so strong. They're also strong defensively. Uh, Andy Robertson is a real leader. He's got the captaincy now. Where do they play Tierney? They push him forward into left mid. They do. I think that, or they sometimes, I think they play three at the back sometimes and maybe have them uh, play as center, you yeah. know, right-sided centre-back or something yeah. like that. Um, yeah, so I think maybe a little bit oh. of moving around just to fit them in wherever they can, right? I mean, how good is that going to be? England, Home Nations, European 2020 game at Wembley, is that? No, no, this is the game in Scotland, if that's right. Is it Hampden Park? What, the England game? I think the yeah. England game's at Wembley, I think. At Wembley, all three I at Wembley. Is. I think I see, so. Okay. Don't quote I thought me on Scotland were one of the home nations. So I know they play games at Hampden Park, so I think they play their other two at Hampden Park. I think they have one game in Baku or something, I, I think, oh, somewhere, they? which I, I think is very unusual. I might be wrong, and don't quote me on this at all, but yeah, I think they do actually okay. play in the, the lovely city, street race city of Baku. Yeah, hopefully they've reconverted it from a street circuit to a football pitch. <laughs> uh, but they... Um, do you know, Dan? They're, do, they're, do still, you know they're still hunting for the rest of Stroll and Verstappen's tyres. Um, I'm glad you said tyres at the end of that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm excited uh, to see how Scotland come through the group, obviously, as long as they finish second best to England. Some say that Hamilton is still heading down that (laughs) off-road. Some say. (laughs) I think if we beat Scotland handsomely, uh, the referendum comes forward. (laughs) Another politics move. Um, So... Another thing to talk about as well. Sorry, Dan, I'm going to cut you off before you pun your way back into this conversation. Um, Coronavirus. We talked about it last week. Did we think there would be an effect on the tournament? We've seen uh, Spain have a few issues. Sergio Busquets today or yesterday tested positive for coronavirus. Uh, The team has gone into a kind of bubble-like isolation. Uh, They've also hired... Hired. They've also brought in... um, Kepper from from Chelsea and a few other players that didn't make the final team as a as alternative bubble of players who might have to play if worst comes to worst. Um, Scotland had an issue last week, I believe. Uh, John Fleck tested positive, and several players had to isolate or at least um, they didn't play in their first game, including John McGinn among amongst others. Um, so we're already seeing effects. Uh, I can't see us going a whole tournament without it being an issue. I just hope that we manage to get. You know, a little bit um, of football without it being tempered by this annoying and tragic pandemic. Yeah, we, you know, we, we talked at the top of the show about John Rahm, you know, missing the big payout. How about if we get to a final and you've got Mbappe? You know, God forbid no one gets ill or no family members get ill, but imagine if Mbappe can't play a final or Harry Kane can't play a final because they're tested positive for COVID, you know, symptoms, completely asymptomatic. Can you imagine it could have a massive effect? And let's be honest, probably will it's just it's it's been pandemic for 16 months you never know what's around the corner and fingers crossed the tournament can go ahead with fans that would be the worst thing if they're played behind closed doors 
that's the thing, the scale of the Euros, the amount of teams, the amount of people involved, the personnel around them, the trainers, it's logistics, the chances of it affecting, as you said, during the tournament are quite high, given that it already has yeah. on the, the way in. These big players will obviously be, be in bubbles as they are now, and the teams are going to be very strict. You can't risk losing your your best assets. Um, and the fans, I believe, when they arrive at the stadiums, have to show uh, their COVID vaccine certificate, or they have to show their um, a COVID a test, a free test. Well, isn't it that they could just do the Donald Trump school of uh, vaccine response, which is just to say if they don't test, they won't find it and the numbers will go down. As opposed to just just injecting disinfectant as they walk (laughs) into the stadium. (laughs) Chugging chugging Dettol as they... smash some Dettol in your eye. No longer Gatorade sponsoring sports, (laughs) it's Dettol. (laughs) Trump had his way. Sorry. By the way, a public <laughs> service announcement: Please don't drink any Dettol. Anybody yeah. out there? I oh, know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. that's class four. Sorry, class as stupid shit. Mm, <laughs> don't do stupid shit. Not daft shit. Stupid shit. <laughs> so, All right. predictions. More. Go for it. There yeah. is more. Dan is so eager for us to leave this. There's only a few. We're nearing the end, my friend. We're nearing the end. Um, top scorer. We talked about it a minute ago. Okay. Um, I've gone for Lukaku. I think Belgium are going to get far in the tournament. And with De Bruyne not playing, I think Lukaku becomes the sole focus. And I think he scores a hat full of goals. Mm, I like that. I like that shout. I'm going to have a look at the odds as we finish air tonight. If we get off air tonight, but no, uh, Harry Kane's going to going to finish on seven goals. One better than Griezmann Ooh. last time around. Is Belgium who I have in the sweepstakes, Simon? They are, mate. You, you've done have... all right. Yeah. Do you have Belgium in the sweepstakes? Mm-hmm. And you've got Belgium, Netherlands yeah. in the sweepstakes. Wow, you guys are cheered, haven't you? Yeah, well, I, the Netherlands is my one at work. In my one with uh, with Dan and everyone else, I got uh, Germany and Switzerland. So. Sorry, you're, you're on with Dan and everyone. Who did I get, Si? Um, you got uh, Jack Shipp. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> who got North Macedonia? Uh, my mother. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Shout out to mum. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so you're going Harry Kane. I think that's a good shout as well. I mean, you, I've got Ronaldo on my list and Mbappe. I think it's going to be one of the usual suspects. Yeah, Lewandowski being a little bit of a, a dark horse because I don't think Poland will get far enough, but he's got the skills, he's got the finishing to score the goals. So we'll Yeah, see. they have to get far. The, 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 whoever it is has to get far. Griezmann got it last... Euros was six goals, made it all the way to the final. You've got to, you've got to make a semi or a final. Yeah. Realistically, it's not Baggio time. And another last one, just to say, another dark horse. Um, pretty good odds. Obviously, don't bet when the when the betting when the fun stops, stop or whatever it is. Um, Memphis Depay, nice odds on Memphis Depay, top goal scorer. Scored something like seven goals for for the Dutch in the last. It was five or six games, so he's on a really good tear right now. He scored two yeah. against Scotland, scored another one the other day, I believe. Um, yeah, he's in, he's in good form. Excellent season. Talk of him coming back to the Premier League as well on a future show. Yeah. And last but not least, because Dan is slowly slipping into a a, a you know a, a vegetative state, um, Golden Gloves. I don't think they do the Golden Gloves anymore, and I think it's been coined just for boxing terminology, but we're going to use it for goalkeepers. Who is the goalkeeper of the tournament? Well, we'll say who's going to keep the most clean sheets, I think, is the most likely. Uh, Golden Globes. Golden Gloves. Oh, Golden Golden Gloves. Okay, right. Um, So I think 
Pickford. <laughs> yes, I think there's a slight England focus on here. Um, yeah, if it's not oh, Pickford, it's Sam Johnson. Yeah, of course, um, it's Pickford. Yeah, obviously, all the way. Yeah. It's coming home. I, I my So we're going to score the most goals and not concede many. I like it. I That's like how you it. win tournaments. Yeah. yeah. Um, being that I've seen how my one of my centre-backs, uh, Tyrone Mings, is playing right now, I'm not really holding out much hope for England's <laughs> defence at the moment. Um, so, yeah. So we shall see. Um, I've gone through. I mean, you've got to look at a team in an easy group. I think you can't go for anyone like Lloris or Neuer or anything like that because I think there's just... They, they're going to concede in at least one or two of the games in their group of death. I think it's not un, unkind to say such things, but I think you've got to look at Courtois, a Belgium's a good shout. Donnarumma at uh, Italy. I mean, Italy in good form. Is um, he starting Donnarumma? Yeah, I believe he is. I, I, I think he was. I think what he started the last Buffon? game. What happened to Gianluigi? Well, he's about 75 years yeah, old. Yeah, but That's I thought why. he was still the best. So they wheel him out and just put him in the middle <laughs> of the goal and hope for the best. You can make it. Um, I've also gone for whoever plays in goal for the, for the Dutch is a, is a dark horse because they haven't got the hardest group in the world. It's either going to be Sillison or Cruel. So take your pick out of those two. Well, um, that's that when Van, when uh, Van Gaal was managing them, he took yeah. Cruel off to put Sillison on, on for a, a shootout and Sillison mm. saved and they won the game. So A little bit of history. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's quite a few uh, guys. I mean, whoever's playing in goal for Spain, I mean, is it Simon? Is it, um, is it De Gea? I mean... Yeah, I mean, you really, it could be, it's going to be a coin toss. I'm just going to go for, I'm going to go for a dark horse. I'm going to say Kasper Michael. I don't think the wow. Danish concede many. Uh, they've And their group as well, Finland, Belgium, Russia. <laughs> they, they might only concede against uh, Russia, uh, Belgium rather, so. Yeah. That's my, that's my shout. Anyway, uh, we're finished, Dan. You, you, can, I, no, you can wake up now. Finished. We're not finished. Dan, we're not finished. finished. Sorry, you, Dan. You, you wait your turn because we just did a whole section. I'm not. I'm sat here just listening. You, I don't yeah, know why you keep... I'm not even trying to interject. You just, we do your thing, did guys. not mention Ben White, who actually oh. plays his football about five miles from where Dan is sat right now. So, come on. Nine. I mean, how many miles? Nine. Nine. There you go. Nine miles. He's speaking German for some reason. Uh, ben White, uh, Ben White. Why is he in the goddamn squad? Why was it not James Ward Prowse? I think, I think, um, I said Schmeichel. Uh, Southgate's just worried about the the, the defense. I think yeah. looking at Mings's performance, I said I like Mings. I, I like Mings. I I'm a Villa fan. I love how his organization skills. Um, but he's not had the greatest season for Villa. He's been the second best centre back in our team. Um. Ben, who obviously listens to the show regularly, will agree with me. I think Const has been the best centre-back for Villa by our country mile. Uh, and he's shown in the last two games he's been slow to danger. He's made mistakes. He should have been sent off against Austria for forearm smashing their striker <laughs> Yeah, for some reason. I don't have no idea what that was about. Um, yeah, so I think he's worried. I think he's just got, look, I need to get another centre-back in. It obviously, in the end, probably goes to show how far away Maguire is. He's obviously that worried about Maguire. He's more worried about Maguire than he is Henderson. And, I mean, he's seen Henderson take a penalty. So, I mean, ultimately, you know, that, that should be alarming enough. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, uh, on Twitter this week, the big conversations were not uh, actually anything to do with Ben White or Ward-Prowse or defensive. It's who you play up front. You know, some people are still in Raheem Sterling's corner. Some people are talking about Rashford. Some people are talking about, uh, you know, who's going to be fit, who's going to be fit basically to go around Kane. And I think it's just a good problem to have uh, what England have at the moment under Gareth Southgate. But just to sum it up, I tell you what, 
if you go by players have never let you down and not thinking about form, that, in my opinion, is a losing team. I think if we go and we think, oh, well, Sterling's not let us down or Rashford's never let us down, that's a losing team. That's a team that doesn't win. Do you know what? And you have to go with form. I echo a a response from a Twitter man, uh, Conte343, if you're listening. He said, WTF, uh, that's uh, what the fuck, Daniel, in uh, language speak, um, did Rashford do this season other than feed kids? He's only scored 11 goals in 37 appearances. That's abject. He's not a kid anymore. Now, this all comes off that form conversation, but... Rashford was actually real bright in that last game, real bright. Mm. So maybe he's had his rest, maybe he's relaxed, maybe he's having no contact training because of that shoulder. Rashford's got to start. Sterling, nah, on the bench, on the bench, mate. Well, there we go. That is all that we have left to say on the Euros ahead of the start of the season. The next time we uh, talk to you, they will have kicked off and I'm sure we'll have more to talk about that as we go. So thank you, gents. That is uh, Formula One and the Euros covered. So let's look ahead. Um, anything happening this weekend? Euros. <laughs> coming home. It's coming. Football. Can we uh first before we we end the show, before we go on to any kind of next week stuff, I've got a couple of bits to talk about if that's okay. Can we just uh, get a review uh, me and side do a review out of ten on your first ever meaty middle for the last Wednesday of the week? You wanna do the autopsy now, do you? Yeah, yeah. Listen, on the recording. I, yeah, listen, I think you meant you said the word tire gate. Uh, I think we lost some listeners. Uh, I'm going with a a a solid six out of ten. Appreciate it. Well, I zoned out and didn't listen to any of it, but I like the looks of your faces. I thought it was very, you know, we very colourful, very bright. Um, and you know, I I just like the cut of your jib, so I'll give you an eight. Well, I, th- I appreciate that because you wow. guys just cut me adrift and leave me out on my own. You know, I don't have anything to work off, you know, bounce off. <laughs> you guys are no fun when I'm talking, you know. So <laughs> I give you as uh, co-hosts a three. Well, Dan, you're no fun when you're talking either. <laughs> so. Right. And uh, let's move on to what's happening in the week ahead. Because I'll be back next week. I'm here. I'm here to stay. This is our last podcast, obviously. (laughs) Right. We've got Euro 2020. Uh, I'm going to leave side on that note uh, to talk about that note. Uh, Excellent role on Garros. Genuinely, the tennis has been fantastic. Uh, The... Night games, which have been crap this year, are going to be incredible next year. So they're interesting to watch. Uh, A quick mention on boxing that we missed at the top of the uh, show. AJ and Usyk is going to be played out or fought out at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Hmm. So they're doing that at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium at the end of this summer. And just a couple of bits on Liverpool. (laughs) When did we last talk about Liverpool? Uh, We have lined up a friendly with Rangers. So Steven Gerrard will play against or take his his Rangers lads uh, to Anfield to play against Jurgen Klopp. And Anfield, talking of that, stadium expansion has uh, has been given the green light. So we're going from 54 to 61,000 capacity. Work's going to start imminently, £60 million, they reckon, although I think that would be more. Uh, one good thing, that will allow us to do NFL events, Ooh. over 60000 and that, I think, is a big, big play. 
There you go. Um, so, and so I'm going to, I'm going to let you have the final word today. So I'm going to dive in with what's coming up, uh, because I want you to give us some detail on the ORAs, what, what people should expect to watch and when, um, but I'm going to talk about motor racing surprisingly. And this weekend, the World Endurance Championship is heading to Portimao in Portugal, which, as we know, for those that have listened or watched any F1 there recently, is a glorious track to watch cars race around. Uh, and these are the um, the high-end uh, endurance cars that are going around there um, with this year's Hypercar Series, uh, the new Hypercar Series, Le Mans Hypercar Series, or LMH, uh, with a new entry this weekend, Ben. So... This this uh, series is starting to gain numbers. You know, Peugeot are working on theirs, and um, uh, we've already got Toyota in, and um, uh, there's one other I've forgotten the name. Uh, Alpine is it Alpine? In, are they in the hypercar? But anyway, Glickenhaus are yep, a team. Yep. They're coming in with uh, their hypercar. So Glickenhaus, I, I only found this out recently. James Glickenhaus owns this motor company. And they make a range of cars, some for racing, some for the road. He's actually a movie director, movie producer. I've uh, oh, done wow. a few movies. Um, but he's got three drivers in his car and uh, three names that have got some pedigree at Le Mans. So I thought I'd give you some info on that, Ben, because I know you'll be into it. One is um, Romain Dumas, mm-hmm. who, um, big name in racing, a couple of firsts at Le Mans, or three three firsts um, since 2010, one with Audi, a couple with Porsche, and most recently raced with Rebellion last year, came in fourth. So he's got pedigree at the thin edge of the wedge, thin end of the wedge at Le Mans. Uh, but they've also got Ryan Briscoe and Richard Westbrook, who uh, most recently racing with Ford uh, in the GT40s, glorious cars. They did all right, a few top 10 finishes. Um, but last year, um, Richard Westbrook drove for Aston Martin. So you know, these are experienced drivers they've got in that new car. So uh, it's the, the hype, the you know the interest, the series is starting to build. I can't wait to start seeing that develop over the years. And, and I'm going to be watching with a keen eye on, on Sunday as they yeah. race rounds. We were only talking earlier today about Le Mans, just the excitement, gutted we can't be there this year, but we appreciate uh, fan and and team safety comes first. Dumas, I think he was at the beginning of the uh, Audi um, uh, hybrid era, so so uh, very, very successful Le Mans driver. Uh, can't wait to see the hypercars in the flesh, Dan. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to that. And um, right, so that brings us on to the end of the show. So all that's left to say is thank you very much. <laughs> Only joking, Sai. It's what's happening this weekend. You're so excited. It's, it's the Euros. Yeah, I sound, I sound very bedpan at the best of times. No, it's, it, I mean, it's exciting times. Me and Ben Ben chatted all, all the last show about how much we're looking forward to it, how we're going to get on the bandwagon, how all my negative energy that I'm currently um, is pulsing from every pore in my being is going to be dispelled when we, we sneak a 1-0 win against Croatia and I'm going to start singing It's Coming Home. I already am anyway, most <laughs> of the day. So, so no, what, very what, kicks, what kicks off and when? So first match is, is Friday, is it? Yes, so this Friday, 8pm, it's Italy versus Turkey, which I think is actually a really nice game to start. I think two decent teams... Um, I think probably end up as a draw. Um, playing on BBC, um, so for anyone who doesn't know, anyone in this country, um, all the games will be played on either BBC or ITV. 
so as long as you have uh, access to both of them, you'll be able to watch 100% of the games. Um, if you're watching, listening from abroad, uh, probably on one of your local uh, uh, subscribers, uh, subscribers um, I don't know, maybe NBC or, or whoever. So um, obviously check your local listings, everyone. So, yeah, so that's game one. And then we've got uh, some big games coming up. So we'll, we'll kind of cut through some of the lesser interesting games. We've got Wales-Switzerland at two on Saturday, which is the first game of the, of the home nations. Um, Belgium-Russia that evening um, on IT, first game for ITV. The first three games are on BBC, which is very interesting. Um, and then the first England game, the biggest game, and I actually found out today that I'm on call for my job oh. all of Sunday. So guaranteed my uh, colleague who does not watch any football whatsoever is going to call me in at 2 p.m. on Sunday. Um, England, Croatia on BBC. Um, very exciting times. And you know what? Football's coming home. I think a lot of England fans gathering together in pubs and gardens and parks to get together, get drunk and watch England definitely won't have any incidents or accidents that might need uh, checking up on during <laughs> that. What do you reckon? Oh, yeah. yeah. You hold up more hope than I do, buddy. That's all for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get in touch with the show, this is the first time I've said it this show. I'm clearly rusty after a week away. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at Wednesday Pod. You can find us on Instagram as well. You can leave messages on Anchor um, and feel free just to get in touch. Tell us, um, you know, where our opinions are wrong. Or if you want to just get in touch, do do please. Um, yes, anyway, I've completely forgot what I was going with. That. End of I'm the show. so rusty. End, End of, of the, the show, show. Wrap up Be the show. kind. I've been Dan. I've been Ben. I've been Simon. Oh no, you say it second, don't <laughs> yeah, you? I I've do. been Ben third. Okay, I'm fine as well. Oh, we're ruined. Bye bye.